0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is
1: Believe. Welcome to the Press Row. Behind-the-scenes stories from the world of sports media. Press Row, inside and interviews from around the sports world. Now here's your host, Jonah Siegel.
0: Thanksgiving edition in the Press Row. Jonah Siegel here in Seattle. This has been one of the craziest weeks I can remember Uh, just nutty, nutty all over every day, breaking news, all kinds of crazy stuff going on and uh, really wanted to dive into all the changes that I think are going on and are about to happen, both in an ownership and TV and was super psyched when Dan Gladman, who did a lot of the production work and direction work for the Toronto Raptors during their championship years, popped up on my Twitter once again and offered to come on the podcast and talk about his work and some of the things that are going on in the crazy world of television and broadcast. So sit back, relax and learn about the TV production side and sports with Dan Gladman. Welcome back in the press row. Jonah Siegel here in Seattle, a uh, Thanksgiving edition. Man, oh man, a, a lot going on. It has been one of the craziest weeks that I can remember. Uh, And that does not talk about the geopolitical, that does not consider, I should say, the geopolitical situation going on in the world right now. Uh, All the craziness going on with Twitter and X, the open AI stuff. Uh, Today alone, we had what people first thought was a terrorist attack at a border between Toronto and Buffalo. Uh, I just now saw a video of a car leaping, Uh, a Bentley nonetheless. We'll talk about that in a second, what's happened at OpenAI, tons of sports information, breaking news this hour that John Gibbons is heading back to Major League Baseball with the the New York Mets. Just a bleep ton to talk about today, and I am super stoked to be doing so with uh, an award-winning longtime TV sports producer. He is uh, a freelancer now. He's also a
1: part-time instructor in Toronto. He is Dan Gladman. Dan, how are you? I'm great, Jonah. It's really cool to finally be talking to you. I've been following your your social media presence and uh, your podcast for years, and I, you know, I'm grateful to get the invitation. Well, I am uh, humbled to have you on, and
0: I'm sure you're going to educate me and um, and my listeners. You know, it's funny. I, I as I often do here, I, I scoured the net for a bio on you. Thankfully, the fine folks at the College of Sports Media had something because unfortunately you don't have a Wikipedia page, Dan. We have to uh we have to get your PR team on that. Um <laughs> we'll call Mr. Wiki. Get, yeah, uh, exactly. I think it would get him out of, of Russia or wherever he is these days. Um Dan is an award. I'm reading here. Uh Dan is an award-winning live sports event producer who led the production of the Toronto's Raptor game. Broadcast nationwide from opening night 2009 until Christmas Day 2019, he is the first and only Canadian to produce the NBA Finals and Eastern Eastern Conference Finals, easy for me to say, culminating in a Canadian Screen Award for Best Live Sports Event. This capped an 18-year run working for the Raptors TV properties. For six years, he appeared as a regular panelist on the weekly basketball talk show, The Hangout, on NBA TV Canada. He has appeared on CP24, CBC, Toronto, and Sportsnet, The Fan 590, and has produced men's and women's basketball at the 2015 Pan Am Games, the NBA Summer League, Toronto FC Soccer Broadcast, and the American Hockey League Calder Cup Finals. He recently produced the championship game of the 2020 Canadian Elite Basketball Summer Series, and presently hosts the podcast Jim Rats and Joints. And he was supposed to be on last week, but he got to spend some time in one of my favorite towns, Moncton. How's that? Is that uh, fairly accurate and up to date?
1: It's not totally up to date. Jim <laughs> Rats and Joints was a, a podcast um, that I was working on with Javon Shepard and Andy Routens. It was kind of a, a little pet project in that first year of the pandemic. We we did a year, we did 52 episodes, which uh, I'm super proud of, um, but then I started getting busy again and um those guys also have a ton of work and so we kind of you know we got the first year done we had a good time with it and CEBL 2020 i was there but i've been fortunate enough uh to produce the finals in the in the the four years since so 2020 21 22 and 23 so otherwise it's yeah it's pretty up to date so where were
0: you for the uh the shot if you will the bounce bounce why
1: yeah The Kawhi bounce shot i was in the dome productions truck um at uh the scotia bank arena um and i was running the production that day and uh yeah that that's it's interesting that you start there it was a a day i'll never forget it was mother's day it was a sunday like a sunday evening game and um we were having a there was a mother's day brunch for my mom i couldn't stay but I didn't want to miss her on Mother's Day. So I ran up and surprised her and the family and then zipped down to Scotiabank Arena to uh, assumed my place in the truck for game seven and had a you know really interesting day and an interesting time um, with the Kawhi shot. Um, as it was happening, I told myself one way or another here, something incredible is going to happen, miss or make. So I want to be prepared. And I kind of removed myself emotionally from the moment um, and just kind of watched it and trying to be as neutral as I could. And I remember when it went in and everybody in the, all the other people in the truck, everybody went crazy and screaming. And uh, and after that, I think we had seven, eight, nine minutes showing the mayhem and the emotion. Um, you know, you saw, you saw Joel Embiid Collapse in Mark Gasol's arms in tears. You know, if you were watching Sportsnet that night, you saw that. If you were watching the game on ESPN, that wasn't there. They were showing replays of the shot. Um, but it was our decision, myself, along with our award winning director, Chris Phillips, to live in that live moment um, because this was something really people hadn't seen in Toronto and Canada since. 93, the Joe Carter home run, but really how many people in Toronto in 2019, you and I, Jonah, we, we remember it, but I feel like millions and millions of people maybe never saw it. And the Kawhi shot was just a greater moment.
0: It was akin to the Alomar home run, right? Like it was that, where were you moment that we'll all remember.
1: Where, Where were you?
0: Right here. Uh, not sitting in, in that this chair not no 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 because no, okay. there's there's no TV in here um but I was in this house and sitting watching it and you know I can still smell the smell of the room I can hear it mm-hmm. Maddie D with the call um you know fortunate to be able to ha- to to get the Canadian coverage um then didn't have to watch the American coverage um and You know, that's kind of my next question is Raptors fans from coast to coast and and around the globe, Hmm. pretty blessed with the Canadian content that they get Uh, on the on the production side. Do you guys know that as much as as some of us who don't live in the city do how special the team really is and was back then? I'm not talking about the players. I'm talking about the media side of things.
1: I mean, I'll I'll put it this way. I came out of school as a journalism graduate in 1999. And by 2001, I was working full time for the Raptors. Um, So they're like, at that point, about five years in, maybe six years in. They have Vince Carter and there's a niche audience. Um, But then Vince Carter leaves. And you just don't know if basketball and the Raptors are going to make it in Toronto you just you're just not sure um the the place was generally full every night but the team wasn't very good and the television ratings just weren't there um if we got a hundred thousand viewers you know that was cool but then one year TSN2 came in and Rogers wouldn't carry it so for an entire year, an entire generation of Raptors fans didn't even get to watch them. I had Rogers at the time. I didn't have, I couldn't get TSN too. I would have to go to work um, in order to watch the game or find someone who had bell. So there were a lot of low points. So to get to where we were and to be personally involved in it, to be on the road with the team for 14 years um, to be on the on their charter, uh, to check in at hotels with them, to see moments start to happen, like Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan being named All Stars for the first time. You know that in their lives, that's big. It, to the fans, that might not seem like something, but there was no guarantee those players were going to be All Stars. All of a sudden, under Coach Dwayne Casey, they're becoming All Stars. They're becoming popular. And now they're selling basketball in Toronto and Canada again. Now you get to the playoffs in 2014, Eastern Conference Finals in 2016 against LeBron. And now we're seeing it. People like myself, the people I worked with for years, Leo Routens, Rod Black, Jack Armstrong, and people within the team, other staff people, to feel what it was like when that switch got turned. And not only the Raptors becoming good and popular and famous in the country, but the sport itself. I always feel like we were selling the sport um, and to to have been involved, to to be there, to see it as a media member, as a broadcast person. Um, I don't think I certainly never took it for granted for one minute because you could tangibly feel the sport growing in the country. And that was really the greatest satisfaction because there was a small percentage of us who grew up loving the sport but it was it just didn't compare to hockey and baseball if you were growing up in Canada in the 80s 90s and even that even that Vince Carter decade it it, it had a its thing but it just wasn't at, at a mass appeal level and to see it get there and to see where it is now it is you know it's super rewarding. So
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how you feel about the team now. It's certainly, you know, we always joke that once you win, um, it's good. It's great. And that carries you for a while. Uh, it's been a challenge since, for sure. Um, before we got on, I was looking at at X, I guess I'm supposed to call it, formerly Twitter which I think is just moronic, but whatever. And uh, people were saying that, you know, you shouldn't be mad at the... There was this chorus of, don't be mad at the Raptors because you forget how bad it used to be. And I looked and they were getting hammered early tonight by Portland. Uh, again. Uh,
1: should we I think be- they're playing Indiana. Is oh, it sorry. Indiana I thought,
0: thought, thought it was Portland. Well, yeah. I can look I think. While you're answering, I will look. But okay. how concerned should we be about the the recent uh, downturn in performance of the team?
1: Well, uh, I'm going to phrase everything by saying that um, basically from 1999, 2000 until 2019, I watched every Toronto Raptors game. I mean, I was at most of them home and away. Um, but since I left the company, I really, I, I, I really haven't watched. Um, I don't watch them. I keep an eye on things. Um, I'm generally aware of the games. Um, one of the first jobs I had after life after Raptors um, was producing a morning show at BNN Bloomberg. And I was, my alarm was going off at 4.15 a.m. I was arriving at work at 5.15, and my show was on the air at 8 a.m. So I was going to bed before most of the games even started. Um, and I just kind of got in the habit of of not watching. Um, and you're really the first person to publicly ask me, what do I think is going on with the team? And as an outsider now, it's been hard watching champion the champions leave one by one um i mean i don't think it was a surprise that Kawhi left but then kyle lowry left and then fred van vliet left um and they didn't get anything in return um and then you you hear these reports like what's going on with pascal siakam and i think that in the the really golden years 16 17 18 19 You didn't really hear things like that. You didn't hear negative, negative stuff. And no one was leaving because everyone knew how special it was. Um, I look at I look at the roster and there are several very talented basketball players. But I feel like three of them. I don't want to say are the same guy, but you're you're you don't have a lot of variety in skill sets and so i think from a roster makeup position i think there's some work to do um but overall i i i don't know what direction the team or the entire organization is going in i i worked on toronto fc games um this in this calendar year um i i witnessed the maple leafs win a round of the playoffs and then get handled in in the second round so I I in my mind as someone who doesn't watch that much and is an outsider but who was formally very close to it um I do have concerns about the direction of all the teams and that's it's just based on the results I mean they haven't won anything since the Raptors won in in the championship in 2019. it's almost going to be five years. And I think that the honeymoon has to be over. And at some point they need to show that they can win again. And then it wasn't a fluke. Um, And I don't know what's been done to address that with with the Raptors. If you ask me how many games they are going to win this year, it's like 38, 40, 42. But what does that, what does that get you? How do you, are you going to rebuild like you you know you you need a number 1 or 2 pick they they made a great pick with Scotty Barnes a couple of years ago but you need somebody else so um right now i i think uh, i don't think this is controversial to say it that there's some work to do and i think it starts with picking a direction and deciding which way they want to go on the ice on the pitch and certainly on the basketball court so
0: fair to say that you are not a uh, corporate insider. So what I'm asking for is clearly opinion. But the first question, you know, follows everything that you just said, and that is, in my opinion, the most fascinating story is going to take place in a boardroom, not on a court, not on the ice, or not on a pitch. And that is that there are rumblings of ownership changes and percentage changes at your old employer. And we've seen, you know, the first chapter, if you will, with part of the shares now going to an outside firm. And what brought you and I together for this discussion was the very, uh, public lack of bidding on MLSE's part for a WNBA team which led to some pretty public disclosures of how that happened or why that happened. Um, Disagreement apparent disagreements between Larry Tannenbaum and Edward Rogers, Jr. I think it's impossible from my opinion to not discuss the boardroom and the ownership group when you talk about the future of any of the teams or all of the teams. And to me, I think that's the most important question for all of them is ultimately, how is that going to unfold
1: in the next several months? Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. And, you know, I never not I didn't not pay attention to the business side of it, but I didn't really care. And in the four years since I left the company working I, I were I do television shows at BNN Bloomberg I I read sports business Journal I have come over to the side of following the business of sports um by the way we're producing a uh, newsletter called business of sports on BNN Bloomberg please subscribe little plug there um I think you you hit the nail on the head there because I now think that the boardroom the business, is more fascinating than what's happening on the court. It is so intriguing. And you look at this situation. When when I talk to people in the United States, friends, colleagues, people I just meet in in the sports industry, and I explain to them the ownership structure of MLSC, I'm like, yeah, Bell and Rogers, they combine half and half to own 75% of this company. And then I say to them, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, Verizon and AT&T being partners. And the Americans are like, what? How do blood rivals become partners? And that's that is the scenario. And then you see the succession. However, how Ed, Edward Rogers got there. I have no idea. I'm sure there'll be a a movie or a television show about it one day. Um, and his... Uh, intentions are clearly don't line up with the intentions of Bell and I get and Kilmer Sports. Um, the the WNBA is kind of this like touchstone for the disagreement, which goes obviously so far beyond the WNBA. What direction do the Leafs go in? What direction do the Raptors go in? How much money gets invested here? How much money gets invested there? And ultimately, the biggest. The biggest thing is going to be, well, what happens when it's time to sell off one or both of the teams? You know, they invested for $1 billion, 10, 12, 14 years ago, whenever it was, for a billion dollars, they got the Leafs, the Raptors, TFC, and I believe the real estate. I'm not 100, but whatever. That's small potatoes compared to the teams. We're seeing NBA teams valued and sell for $4 billion, U.S., What Jordan sold the Hornets for like three or three and a half billion. The uh, Forbes came out and evaluated the Golden State Warriors at like $7.3 billion U.S. If Bell and Rogers sold off the Raptors, they would each get like their, double their investment, if not triple, And they'd still own the Leafs, the most valuable hockey franchise in the world. So I think that there's so much intrigue. There's so much potential for what's going to happen. And the next TV deal is going to dictate what move is made there, because at some point, the shareholders are going to say, we've made the return on investment is incredible. Let's let's get out of this business now. We don't need it.
0: Right. So first of all, you are correct. I forgot to tell you before. The Raptors are playing Indiana. I was wrong. There we go. It takes a big man to admit that he's wrong. (laughs) And as everyone tells me, I am a big man. So um, two things I think are, are, are important to note. One, it's virtually impossible to have the discussion that we're having without including media rights, because on the NHL side, that's where all the money is so you can't and in canada there's only two players in media right now and the two of them happen to split ownership of of the main franchises and one of them owns the baseball team so they're even stranger bedfellows if you will when you when you keep that in mind the second part is the most intriguing question and and this is maybe unfair but it's a podcast and who cares So, if if the parties were going to sell, the numbers are so big, who's going to be the buyer? Because the numbers are that big, and the media stakes are in play. So, if either of these guys are going to sell, they're not going to want to sell the media rights, because who's going to carry the games? The games have to be on one of Rodgers or Bell or both. They they want that they're not that stupid. Well, maybe they are, but let's suppose they're not that stupid. But who's going to write that check because it's big, and it's going to be a U.S.
1: number, big. I I have two answers to that question, um, and the first one is to kind of maybe disagree. Okay, who says the games have to be on Sportsnet or TSN? W- why, why do they? I mean, the NBA deal is up in two years. Adam Silver has told all the teams don't make any television deals and half of them lost their regional sports network rights. Valley went, went under and teams like the Utah jazz are coming up with their own way to put the games on TV for a couple of years. And it's mostly streaming and there's the keyword. word. And, you know, Adam Silver looks at how much money the NFL is making and he wants to get closer to that. You know, if, if, if the NFL is, is making 20, 25 billion a year, Adam Silver wants the NBA to make at least 15 billion a year. They're not making that now. They're probably closer to eight, maybe 10. Um, What's, what's the difference? The, the television money the, from legacy media, but now you have the streamers coming in. Amazon's paying a billion dollars a year for one game a week for, for 20 weeks. What's the math on that? So like 50. is it 50 million a show and they're doing uh the Black Friday game and they're just going to inundate people with sales offers the whole game who're watching on on Prime um MLS on Apple to me is the indicator of what's coming next um not only does this give your product the NBA in this instance as a hypothetical example. But the money that's coming in is insane. It's like a 10 year $1 billion deal for MLS. That's 100 million a year that they never have come close to that before. And anybody in the world can watch it anywhere. And then Messi came in and the the subscriptions doubled. So it worked. So if you're the NBA, you have to look at that. You have to be looking at, um, are we going to Apple? Is Apple going to buy ESPN? Is Apple about to become the worldwide leader in sports? Why am I saying all this in response to your question? To me, if Apple or or Netflix or one of these giant streamers becomes the 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 rights carrier to the games, even a, a percentage of it, what do Rogers and Bell care if it's on TSN or Sportsnet? They own the pipe. So even if you're watching it on Apple or Prime, one way or another, you're paying Bell or Rogers to watch. So to me, if that becomes the case, I think that makes TSN and Sportsnet obsolete. Because Bell and Rogers are going to make the money off of the broadcasting one way or another. So to me, that is, it has to be considered in the next business maneuver. And if you look at the Jays, remember they were owned by, well, I guess they were owned by Labatt, but then Interbrew bought Labatt. So to answer that question a little more simply... I think you, if you're going to sell one of the teams, it would be to a, uh, a foreign owner, a foreign investor, or if you look at how the NBA is doing it, some big hedge fund, right? That's so, who owns the Milwaukee Bucks. Right.
0: So I think the biggest difference, in my opinion, and I'm not saying you're wrong, the biggest difference in the NFL is Thursday to Monday. You know, Thursday, there's a game. Sunday, there's a bevy of games. Monday, there's a game, maybe two. The NBA, you've got to fill seven days a week full of entertainment. And that's when you have ESPN, TNT, you know, you've got networks that rely on content to fill hours. On this side of the border, my understanding is that the networks are pretty upset that Monday night football is available both on ESPN and on ABC as a result of the strike. That just ended but it filled a ton of hours and it decimated the advertising market because taylor swift happens to be dating a football player <laughs> it, it is what it is right um so while i agree with you because i'm digital first i i think that eventually we're going streaming all in i'm not sure that the next deal is 100 percent streaming What I don't have the answer for, so I don't think you're wrong. I just don't think we're there yet. What I don't know is how that implicates, what the implications are for Canada um, quite yet and how that implicates the, uh, what implication that has on the Canadian audience. And what we haven't talked about, that's the NBA side of it. The bigger question obviously is when Gary's sweetheart deal expires, what happens there? Now, I recognize you spent most of your time in the NBA, but when that bad boy expires, what happens? Because he got one hell of a sweetheart deal from Rogers that I don't think anybody thinks is going to be replicated again. That's proven to be challenging uh, for Rogers for sure. Yes, I think Gary said he wants a streaming component to go alongside of it. But i don't think anybody thinks rogers is going to pony up the same type of money and at least publicly from what i'm hearing bell is saying we're not interested at least that's what they're saying publicly so i think on that side of it it's going to be equally as fascinating to watch what happens there any thoughts on the nhl side of it yeah
1: if you talk to the to the rogers sportsnet people they're going to tell you they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep to keep the nhl package is it affordable at at 5 billion dollars for 12 years um I, you know i don't know i i i don't have the numbers if the numbers were in front of me I, I probably wouldn't even know how to digest it and make sense of it i have my pie in the sky dream would which would be for for the 3 networks in canada to just split it up and just share it um they, they do this in the states in the nfl If the Americans can do it, why can't we? And then, you know, you can have um, Sportsnet has its precious Wednesday night game of the week. You give TSN the Friday night game of the week. You give CBC its hockey night in Canada where it belongs. Um, And maybe all three of them come together, pony it up, and they share it. And you rotate the conference finals and the Stanley Cup final every year. Again, just like they do with the Super Bowl, just like they do with the NFL conferences. Now, that's my hippie utopian version of it. Um, again, I don't know if the Rogers board and the Bell Media board are, are willing to do that. I don't know if Bell Media is is interested in spending that kind of money. Um, I know everyone at TSN is, but, but they're owned by Bell Media. And, you know, Bell Media is making cuts. You know, I, I, they're not necessarily investing as much in in productions, right? You know, those those games are really expensive. And what what if Apple comes sniffing around or Prime or YouTube? What if they have have this sweetheart? T- what if they come to Batman and they say, "Uh, 10 billion? You know what what does he do then what his as you called it his sweetheart deal ends and he gets a sweetheart deal that's double um and all of a sudden canadians are left in the lurch because it's not on cable tv anymore but you know you're digital first the next generation they're digital only correct so you know i i think at some point a decision is going to have to be made um And it's probably going to be the almighty dollar that makes the decision for everybody because the money in tech is just so much more than it is in cable television and these networks, no matter who they're owned by. And the difference now is I don't know how much it helps you sell cell phones and bandwidth to have a team or a league when they're just going to be streamed you're going to make all the money because you own the pipeline. So I think all those things and probably a hundred thousand other things that I'm not smart enough to really know about, but I think those things are going to come into play. And the, the next round of negotiating for the, the NHL deal in Canada, it's going to be, it's going to be super interesting because the the tech companies are going to really disrupt.
0: Well, that's why I think that it's impossible to not have the discussion about Maple Leaf sports ownership and not have the TV discussion at the same time.
1: Absolutely. They're, they're hand in hand. It's basically the same conversation. Do you think that the, and again,
0: I don't know how much time you watch hockey content, but the number as someone who watches a lot and hears from a lot of people, the battle cry, I hear a lot these days, unlike the Raptor side of things, I think Raptors fans genuinely love Raptors broadcasts where I think hockey fans in Canada are really frustrated with the quality of the national broadcasts in Canada versus the the competition right now in the States. And that what they see on ESPN and TNT on hockey, they find superior to that on Sportsnet Hockey Night in Canada. And that's new. We used to take great pride in the fact that it was our game. Nobody did it better than we did. And I can tell you on a typical Saturday night, and I have the benefit of being on the West Coast. So for me, it starts at four o'clock, which is a gift. But my phone lights up from four to seven during that early game with people just bitching and moaning about the pregame, the video, the intermissions, the cameras, everything. Any comment on on why you think the U.S. has suddenly surpassed the Canadian quality, if you will, of uh, the broadcast and hockey?
1: I I don't think I have a a tangible response. Um, I just don't watch it enough, but I have an emotional response. Those are the and, best ones. Okay, well, I I think it comes. The answer is probably the same answer as. 90% of questions it probably comes down to money. Um if you're TNT and I'm not even sure who owns them now is it is it AT&T is it Time Warner I I I always kind of forget. Um they didn't they didn't get hockey NHL just to have it. They're competitive. They want to have the best show. TNT's basketball show is just amazing. It's, it's the, to me, it is the standard in North American sports and their baseball shows pretty damn good too. And so hockey was an opportunity for them to flex that muscle a little bit more. Um, you know, I don't know how, how Gretzky is as an announcer, but how did Canada never hire Gretzky to be an announcer? It's Gretzky. You think if the Americans could have Jordan, they wouldn't have them. They have Barkley, you know, the next best thing. Um, I think that I'm just assuming they invested a lot of money and the people who work on it want it to be as good as possible. Am am I saying the people in Canada who do hockey don't want it to be the best possible? Of course they do. Um, and I know for a fact there's some damn good producers and directors and talent who work on those shows. I, I know a lot of them personally, and they're super creative people. Um, I just have to guess that um, the money that goes into a production on an American, especially a national show, TNT, you know, you were talking about this earlier about NBA and NHL. It's a Monday, Monday to Sunday thing. It's seven days a week. It's not like the NFL. Well, TNT does what, two games a week? Yeah. ESPN probably does a handful. Sportsnet's doing a ton of games. I mean, on Saturday alone, they're probably doing four games. So that's a lot of people working on a lot of shows, but it's a lot of money being spent. So, you know, I just have to assume the budget um, on a show in the USA allows them to have a show that. The Canadian audience might, you know, people rush to judgment on these things, but it's possible that the American show has a bigger budget and therefore it might look better on television right now. So you teach
0: TV production now, correct? That's what you're teaching at the College of Sports
1: Media? I do. Um, I teach a, a super fun class called Live Event Coverage. <clears throat> um and you know it's just the school's great they they teach them every aspect of sports broadcasting but this is game coverage um so in this first two semesters of this i guess fall term or whatever so i'm teaching them an open this is how you start a show you know on on the raptors show i think we uh, i used to do 6 minutes Um, I'll have these students do three minutes um, and it's, you know, here's what the host does. Here's what the analyst does. Here's what I'm looking for in the, in the sideline report. The same thing, same thing that I did when I was producing the Raptors. And, you know, once they get that down, then we do a halftime show uh, in the last semester. And then, you know, then they get into a little bit of play by play and, and color of the game. That one, I, I'm not, I find that that's very personal that's everyone has their style and there really isn't a specific way to do it. You just kind of have to find yourself into it. But, but yeah, uh, so I, this would be the fourth year I'm teaching that course and I really enjoy it. And I, I keep going back to do it every year.
0: And the beauty of it is unlike a lot of other universities slash colleges is that students, this isn't a plug for them. And I am, I, there is a reason I'm asking these questions. Um, the students are actually getting practical training so that when they're done and they go to a job, they actually know what they're doing to do the job they're going to be hired for.
1: I think so. Um, I worked with a student um in I guess 2020, 21, Danielle Bain. I she was in my class, and I'm like, this is how you do a sideline report. Well, two years later. She's the sideline reporter for the Toronto Marlies. Um, And then a year after that, she's the sideline reporter for the Scarborough shooting stars in the CEBL, which I'm producing and directing. So now I'm producing my former student. And apparently I had said to her when she was a student, I said, I'll produce you one day. I knew when her name got floated for that position, I'm like, she'll walk right into this. I, I worked with her in the classroom, helped her develop whatever it is, the skills to do it. And now she does it, she does it. And she's fabulous at it. And I think the shooting stars probably consider themselves lucky to have her. And yeah, she walked right out of that school and into that job. And I've seen um, many of those students, they're not necessarily going to on-air jobs, but several of them have. And others have walked into other important jobs in the sports industry for companies that, you know, have business in in sports marketing and broadcasting. And those former students of CSM College of Sport Media they contribute.
0: All right. So you just walked into another question. So we got to take a detour.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: So this past week, uh, a female broadcaster admitted. For reasons that we don't quite understand, that she used to fib on the air um, about sideline reporting, and unfortunately, her name is completely uh, escaped from my mind right now.
1: You know, Larissa.
0: Yeah. What
1: sorry, she basically what she
0: basically said on on her podcast with um, what she basically said was, "Look, there's times where coaches either won't come talk to you or they don't give you anything, and you have to kind of make it up." And the intent, I'm not defending her, but the intent basically was, I do my research during the week. I know they're lousy on third downs. So if the question, you know, if if the producer or director pushes to me, I'll say to him, coach said to me, we need to work on our third downs. And at least I know that's something that makes sense. I'm not necessarily lying, but the coach actually didn't talk to me, but at least that's something that makes sense. That's what she said is that something you used to teach in your class, you know, make shit up as you go along.
1: <laughs> I mean, um it was alarming what she said. I haven't actually physically heard it. It in my heart of hearts I want to give her the the benefit of the doubt and she was just kind of whistling Dixie on a po- on some podcast, you know, like I am right now. Um I don't know if she actually meant that, if she actually goes in and and makes things up. Um, To be honest, in that class, I did say to some of the students, when you're doing the sideline report in this class, I I didn't say make something up. Well, it's tough because in those situations, they're in the classroom. They have 45 minutes to prepare. They can't go and talk to the athletes or the coaches. It's understood you don't make something up it's, it's understood that you're delivering the truth, or at least what somebody told you. Um, but for me, in my experience as a producer, um, working with a sideline reporter, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna necessarily vet the story they have, but I want to know what it is before they, before they deliver it. Um, and I assume that, They've spoken to the athletes and the coaches and they're just reporting back what they were told and told and telling it in a creative little storytelling kind of way. If a reporter goes into a huddle in a basketball game or the coach refuses to talk to them for whatever reason and they don't have anything as the producer, just tell me that and we won't do a story here and we'll do something a little later on. You know, I I, I don't think uh, you should be going on TV and just making it up on the spot. And I, I don't actually think that that's what this reporter did. Um, if she did, that's troubling. Yeah. So I listened to
0: it. When I listened to it, what I heard was I did my homework. So sometimes I didn't get somebody. So I'd rely on my homework. And yes, I would fudge things and make things up. That's what she said. Would it have been better if she said, I didn't get him, but I know during the week these are the things that he
1: was focused on. That would have been better to say. Yeah. Not in the moment, though. I mean, if it's if you're at halftime of a game and you're reporting on the coach, yep. To me, that what they prepared for during the week now is old news. I need to know what's happening in that in that game, especially in a football game. So what should she do? Homework. What should she do? I think she should not or he, she or he in that they. instance shouldn't do a re- right. He, she, they don't do a report there. Tell the producer I don't have anything. Um but I have something on this player. So is that when, sorry for interrupting. No, not at all. So, so
0: for average fan idiot like me. This is happening fast and in real time, right? Like These sideline reports. How much time is there for that discussion between someone like you and a sideline reporter to say, you know, isn't it pre-scripted? Like we're going to come out of this break, and you know that before the game that we're going to go to you. Like we, the fan knows it, right? I know it. I know when you're going to go to it. I know as somebody who watches a game
1: every week what when they're going to go to the sideline reporter. I know it. In the open, in the open, yes. In okay, football, so even
0: in football, I know generally speaking, in football, for sure, after the half, in... going into the half, that there's going to be a sideline report. Now, if somebody gets hurt, something happens, yes, but I'm talking typically, there are standards that we all know for when certain reports are going to happen. Is that dialogue ongoing live during a game between a producer and a sideline reporter? absolutely
1: okay you're talking you're talking to the sideline reporter throughout um i i often text the sideline reporters um yes we assume in a football game at the start of the second half the reporter has spoken to the coach who's trailing in the game and is going to have a report but sometimes i've seen it the coach just doesn't want to talk they're they're mind is on something else they really should talk to the reporter but they don't believe me as a viewer if there isn't a report in that spot you're not you're not gonna it's not gonna go into your mind oh the the reporter didn't do a coach hit there instead the reporter can do something two or three minutes later on a a story from talking to a player like maybe um the player gets a touchdown or a nice run and the the reporter reminds the producer, Oh, uh, I have something there on Christian McCaffrey. And he just passed Roger Craig for the most yards. And I have what he said, bring me in. So to me, I will trade off. um, I will say, you don't have anything from the coach. No worries. Give me something in a couple minutes. Okay. We've, we've checked that box so the reason for other boxes do we got
0: well the reason for my question wasn't about you teaching is a couple years ago not it may have been last season out of nowhere during a seahawks game i think it was they broke out the new handheld camera uh from a sideline and that was like groundbreaking like holy crap that is so cool the gimbal i think that's what it's called maybe (laughs) um as you're teaching classes today how quickly is technology evolving so that today's students need to be learning and staying abreast of new technologies
1: yeah um tech isn't really my thing um not nothing's really my thing but i try to stay <laughs> focused on editorial and the storytelling and and that side of it um I don't know if there's a school in Canada, um, that's really state of the art in terms of uh, in terms of where the technology is, but you know there's there are certain things that you're going to just have to learn on the job, and I think we've seen that with that camera you're talking about, which I believe is called the gimbal. Um, you, you, it started on the NFL broadcast. I think you see it on home Raptors games. I I saw some people doing it at uh, Global Jam this summer. and um i think that things come up and you just kind of you just kind of learn it like the 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 tomorrow's shooters are in positions today like uh they might be a a cable puller or an audio assist and as they're working on that job they're learning shooting techniques from the the people who are camera operators and I, i feel like a lot of those kinds of things you really have to ultimately get thrown into it and and learn on the job. I don't know that you can really simulate shooting an NBA game in a classroom. It's just something that you kind of find your way to. Uh, Believe me, by the time you get to the major sports, NBA, NHL, CFL, MLB in Canada, um, the technology there is state of the art. It's not going to be in the schools. So people are going to have to work their way up um, and prove that they can learn each step of the way in order to operate that uh, machinery.
0: All right. Final question. Cause it's, uh, I don't know why it feels like a Friday. Yeah. And it feels like it's a Friday night cause it's, it's the night before Thanksgiving here in the States. So yeah, it's yeah. late. It's late there in Canada. So last question. And again, this is what brought us together. Um, a lot of outrage, sadness, disappointment that the WNBA isn't, launching in toronto um we we saw publicly all over the press why that didn't happen uh are you surprised and how dead do you think it is or is it only mostly dead in your and i will say on this
1: one i think you're probably more of an expert than you're probably going to let on i don't think it's dead i think someone just has to come up with the money if you come up with that expansion fee, the WNBA isn't going to say, no, thanks. We're good. They're going to jump at it. The question is, who wants to put that money up? It uh, What I see on social media is people saying, come on, WNBA, you got to come to Toronto. I'm convinced they would love to be here. Who's going to own the team? Who's going to spend the expansion fee, the initial investment in staffing and you know, rent and art and just all of it. It, It's such an expensive venture. Um, And I do believe that if someone can prove it's profitable, someone would jump at it. These are businesses. And I'm not here to say the WNBA will or won't be profitable. I don't know. What I've been asking, and I actually taught a course at Ryerson before it was named Toronto Metropolitan University, And I asked the students, um, write an essay on what the next professional basketball team is going to be in Canada. Will it be Toronto WNBA, Montreal NBA, or a women's professional league? Okay. The next step, someone needs to write the business plan. This is how the WNBA is going to make money in Toronto. Show it tangibly. Prove it. Use math and numbers to prove it will be a money-making venture and bam, it'll happen. But like any business, until you have the numbers that that prove it's profitable, then, you know, I, no one's going to establish the business. So there has to be a way to prove where that revenue is going to, how much, how much are tickets going to be? How are you going to sell the season's tickets? Are our Toronto Maple Leaf and Toronto Raptors, subscribers, will they be forced to buy season tickets to the to the WNBA team? I, I say that because that was the case with the Raptors for years. The, the, the Leaf subscribers had to buy Raptors tickets. That's not the case now, but they've done that. So show me the money. Show me how the WNBA team will be profitable in Toronto. And once that's shown, there'll be a team here. So It's definitely not dead. Is it going to happen in the next two or three years? Probably not. But if that business plan is there and it's profitable in five years, there'll be a team here. Right. So in other words,
0: it comes back to the other monster issue is, which is until the MLSC ownership issue is resolved, the WNBA isn't coming. I think we have to be realistic that the odds of Toronto getting a team outside of that ownership structure, whoever it is, is probably pretty remote because it's really hard to own a professional team if you don't own the building. And it seems clear that the ownership group as currently constituted is divided on whether or not they should buy the team. And so far they're divided enough that they voted against submitting a bid.
1: There's other rich companies in Canada other than MLSE. Why does it have to be MLSE? Why can't there be a, a Quebec Corps or a, a big company out of BC or a mining company or a bank? You know, how much does Scotiabank pay a year just to advertise for Scotiabank arena? Why not have a bank take that money, build your own arena and compete? This, there's, this is supposed to be free enterprise, an open market system in this country. I don't think the pressure ha- should be all on MLSE to make this happen. I I have to believe there's other um, organizations or people in Canada who have the money and the, you know, the-, the willpower to make this happen. Yeah, I would just argue that it's so much
0: more challenging for all the reasons that you gave. And that is that if you could bring it under the umbrella, you don't need your own marketing team. You don't need your own sales team. You don't need your own facility. Whereas if you go outside, you are starting from scratch.
1: That's no all. doubt that that is definitely true, but that's how the Raptors got here. They came here no, in their... 95. They start. they had their own arena. Uh, they had no partnership at that time with the Leafs. They they did it. If, if this is a profitable venture, Absolutely, Jonah would be challenging for sure. But who doesn't, you know, who doesn't love a great challenge? (laughs) So that it's, it's up to someone with deep pockets who thinks they can make both their pockets or all four of their pockets super profitable. He is Dan Gladman. You may not have seen him before, but you've certainly
0: seen his work. He is a TV producer extraordinaire. Dan, I really appreciate you taking the time. As I said, I think the next you know, eight to 12 months are gonna be really fascinating as media deals and ownership deals get crafted and uh, things get revealed before us. And as they do, I'd love to have you come back and talk about them. I really appreciate it taking some time and uh, great
1: to finally have you come on. Uh, I'd be happy to, thank you for having me. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoy the day. I'll be watching football for more work, but you know how it is. <laughs> Yes, but th- thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure having this
0: conversation. Awesome. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of In the Press Row. This is Jonah Siegel. If you would like to appear on an episode of The Press Row, you can find me on Twitter at YYZ Sports Media or send me an email at jonah at yyzsportsmedia.com. You can follow this press... Row podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts until next time. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.